Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by the star of our show today, Jim Cott for Cott's Corner. Gave you a little harmonica music, a little, little jazz for the morning, a little blues. Hopefully I didn't bring people down and uh, brought you up. But uh, wanna before we get started with our show, I want to welcome Jim back first and then thank our April subscribers. We keep climbing up the ladder, 15,300 when I checked this morning right before the show. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. Use Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. If you have another streaming apparatus, use that. But make sure you continue to do those things so we can continue to get credit for the listen and continue to bring you great content every week. We're in 71 countries still right now. We haven't gone over 71 in a few weeks. I'm still trying to identify if there's another country out there we can get into. But from grassroots baseball all the way to front offices, we're, we're making a difference now with building better baseball IQs out there. Hit us up on social media. Uh, we go on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I answer a question of the day. Uh, today we have back-to-back-to-back podcasts recording today. Jim's being the premier one this morning. We had almost 700 questions. I was up bright and early, 3.30 this morning, firing out answers to questions. And I put my one on Facebook early on. Uh, it was about uh, people complaining, it's not fair, Jim. How about that? Life's not fair. They just figured it out today. I uh, I gave my I gave my two cents and then some. So, uh, but with that, I want to welcome you back to the show. I know you had a recent move. We won't tell where you moved to. We don't want people bothering you all over the place. But I, I am I am happy that uh, I, I kind of smiled because I've been there myself when I was coaching. When you said the Dollar General is kind of the mall in town. Right, that's right. That's our that's our big attraction. Yeah. When I got my so, first, uh, who who doesn't think what's fair. Well, when uh, I get a question of the day and it's from listeners or people that are in our world from a sports standpoint, and the question was, it's a it's a dad that I'm familiar with and he has a son and a daughter that are tremendous athletes and um, I'm helping them with their, their process uh, going through amateur to, you know, the next level of amateur in college and maybe beyond and professional and just advising the family like we do with so many. And he was noticing the difference as he's been with us for so long that all the parents he's sitting around for the most part are constantly complaining about things not being fair, whether it's the lighting in the gym or at the field, oh, yeah. or playing time or the coach or the referee or the other teams, you know, they're, they're, they're older than they say they are. Or this college doesn't like us for this reason. And, and yeah. I, I kind of hit him on that with uh, hit him on a number of different ways to view it. But in, in the end, if, uh, if you allow that, you know, the, I guess I, I termed it as ego. Um, ego won't allow you to identify, the, I guess, the frailty of your internal makeup. And once you identify that and you can get to the fact that, hey, we don't control this stuff. Um, you know, we can only control that internal mechanism inside, that internal metric on how we judge ourselves. Don't be so worried about what the outside. And that's what it basically is. It's not so much about it, it things being unfair as it is their child is not producing how in their mind oh, yeah. they should. And that's a uh, that's a worldwide uh, opinion. I'm so happy that I had the parents that I did. As I said, my mother saw me pitch one game, and when they would say, "Hey, we heard your son's a pretty good baseball player," she said, "Well, I've heard that. I think he's the one that throws the ball so they can hit it." You know, so she didn't get involved in any of that stuff. And I think I would, uh, Dave. I'd just get like a box of caps that up on top said, "Shut up and play." Yeah. That's uh, yeah. that's it. I go when I go watch my kids play. I I do kind of like I did as a coach. I go stand in the furthest corner possible. Oh yeah, and yeah. I I now wear earbuds like from my cell phone, so people think I'm on the phone or listening to something. I'm really not. So yeah. I just yeah, uh, my dad did the same thing. Yep, deters people from asking me ridiculous questions and suck kind of sucking me into that that negativity. And my message to the group today was on Facebook was. If you don't develop an internal mechanism, you know, it's one thing. We all get hit with that every now and then. It's not fair. But the ones that are strong inside, 
it only lasts for a couple seconds. The ones that aren't, it can last for two years, 10 years, 20 years. And yeah. I think I left it with gravity. You know, gravity's out there. Don't ignore it because it won't ignore you. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Get you. So, um, but every morning I answer something from somebody and uh, we've been getting good feedback from it. So I'll keep pumping those out um, as it fits. But uh, you, you had an interesting, uh, probably a, an interesting, a different di- opening day than anybody in the world. Uh, it's 66 years. This is your first, this is your first day as a fan in 66 years, this past opening day. Yeah, and I've really enjoyed it. You know, I uh, I have strong opinions on on the way the game is operated and played, and I can't change it. And there's a lot of things that annoy me. So particularly if I watch games and I see, you know, for example, the team's down six runs and a guy hits a home run and he's like doing handstands and celebrating like he just found the cure for cancer. I, I just can't – I can't get that. But as a fan – uh, I just I read the MLB.com uh, app and I see follow the guys. I love to follow Pablo Lopez and Joe Ryan with the Twins, and so I'm I'm just a fan and I don't let any of that other stuff those uh, distractions affect me, and I've kind of enjoyed it. That's that's good. Now, had, when you were broadcasting, as opposed to what you're doing now, did you find you were watching the game the same way? Uh, yeah, I would, I would watch, uh, yeah, I would watch my, when you say the same way with things that, uh, that kind of annoyed me, uh, in watching the game. Well, with the same, kind of the same keen eye, you've developed an eye over time. Um, you know, have, I guess two, two ways. Did you, do you find yourself transitioning away from the way you wa- watched as a broadcaster and seeing different things or, and also like I know when I watch a game still, I have a legal pad and a pen or pencil. I use pencil next to me and I'd have a line down the middle of the page, no matter what I'm watching, basketball or baseball, and I'm jotting things down. It's just a habit to do. Um, how about yourself Where when you were watching? Is it just you, you, your eyes and your brain? Yeah, see, I, and I and this is no disrespect to announcers, uh, unless there's something that pops up that I want to say, well, I want to hear what he said about that. But I actually watch most of my baseball games with the volume down me too because i see more and i see i see things that if you were listening to the announcer they might take your eyes or your attention away from that and then that's what helps me really as a as a broadcaster i I think i learned a lot of that from uh, my friend tim mccarver we would sit on the bench and if a guy was scoring a run all the attention was on the runner crossing home plate and uh, Timmy kind of trained me to start looking at, okay, where's the cutoff throw going? The guy that hit the ball, should he be on second? I watch things that uh, that are away from really the point of action, and I, th- I think that's helped me uh, analyze a game when I am uh, announcing a game. Yeah, or, you know, when you're watching it too, the balls or the, the camera, of course, is always following the action, so the, the ball bouncing down the right field line as opposed to, you know, seeing where the runner, the lead runner is going. And I think that's a great way to do it. It's a great message to kids that are watching too. And I do the same thing. The, I did it with, I do it with the final four when I was watching the NCAA tournament. I do it with NBA basketball for the most part. Um, and then I, I do it with major league baseball. Like I think Kevin Kernan had texted me during one of the weekend games and he was, he wasn't happy with the commentating. I can't remember who it was. And I laughed. I said, I have, the, I have the volume down always when I'm watching. Yeah. Um, I just can't, stand the little stories in between that are kind of banter. I feel like I'm in the supermarket. Somebody's right, telling me. Yeah. So, well, that's good. We had a lot of rule changes and we saw, I think some, you know, some things happen, positive, negative um, pitch clock. I mean, what, what's your early assessment on the pitch clock? How, how it's called? Oh, I, I think it's been a, a great success. I think that uh, baseball this year has opened the season with a more positive vibe than I have heard in a long time from fans. I mean, every, I don't think a day goes by that someone either at the golf course or in a store somewhere that knows me and say, well, what do you think of the pitch clock? And I said, I, it, it was necessary. I wish it wasn't necessary with all the science that was crammed into players' heads. They were taking too much time trying to figure out what they had to do either with the next pitch or with the next swing. And what the pitch clock has done, in addition to make the games being played at a very crisp 
uh, pace and time, uh, I think it's it's forced the players to think on the fly for themselves instead of wait and process all the out, outside information that that they get that we never got when we played. In other words, you 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 do your thinking for yourself and don't re- rely on other people uh, to tell you what to do or how to do it. So I think it, it's just a, been a very positive thing. I never thought about it from that standpoint. I, I looked at it the other way where I was wondering if the, if the hitters would have enough time to process. But I, I, I like that way of thinking about it where it's almost forcing them to think of – I mean, when you're, in, if you're at the batter's box, it's – Really, you've got you have to have one approach, and that's it. If you have too many things flying in your head, it's party's over. The guy in the hill already won that battle. So I, I like that. I had not thought about it that way. It's just a simple, simple shift. What about some of these veterans that are digging their heels in? Manny Machado, uh, I think it was a day or two ago. Garrett Cole had a, a walk called on him the other night. It took too yeah. long. Is it something you think that's intentional? Um, on their part where they're trying to make a statement or are they, you know, digging their heels in or is it just, you know, time? they got to take time to do well, it. Well, if it is intentional, they're only hurting themselves. And I think it's just a learning process that particular hitters, when they start talking about a pitching clock years ago, my first reaction was, and I backed that up by saying I was a bit unusual and that I worked at an exceptionally uh, fast pace. I think probably the fastest worker in baseball at that time. I just took no time at all between pitches, but the hitters always wanted more time to step out of the box and get set. And even like Brooks Robinson used to tell me when I went to my uh, quick pitch delivery, he said, you're not giving me time to, to kind of get in the box. And I like to start my motion when the pitcher starts his. So you're not giving me a starting mechanism. And, uh, I've noticed that uh, several pitchers are doing that, and I, I think that's good. I think hitters are going to learn that I don't have time to step out of the box. I got to get ready for the next pitch and think about what it's going to be. And I think all of that is uh, is positive. And if the veterans want to uh, to dig in and argue about it, then I say, well, you're only hurting yourself. Yeah, it almost goes back to what we started the show with—the phrase "it's not fair," right? Where yeah, you yeah. Can- that's a, a big revelation, right? Things aren't fair, but human beings have adjusted to far tougher circumstances than, you know, pitch clocks and, you know, not being able to step out of the box. So I'm, I'm venturing to guess that our finest athletes in the world can figure out a way to make it done, uh, get it done anyway. I, we, I don't know if you saw this. Bryce Harper got interviewed the other day in the dugout um, and it, it hit every, pretty much every medium. And he came at the commissioner, I mean, directly. Uh, where he he was talking about the rules and you know how people outside of players or people that ever played are starting to have too big an influence on the game and we need to get our game back and I thought that was a bold statement um, I had not heard a star make a statement like that um, did you get a chance to hear that and I mean if you I, did- I did not hear it so if I if I gather he he was saying that he thought all these rules that are being uh, pushed by people that really don't play the game yeah it was. Uh, not, and didn't attack a rule directly. I think it was initially about the pitch clock and, you know, the amount of time that he takes as a hitter. And then he didn't get specific beyond that, but just kind of threw a big broad stroke out there um, as a as a complaint that people are tinkering too much with the game, um, especially people who've never played it and the players need to speak up to get their game back. Well, I, you know, I would agree with him there in terms of, uh, you know, the pitch clock is an exceptional thing, but I would agree that for years it's been uh, uh, people, well, in Bryce's case with the Phillies, I'm sure they have people in Sam Full's office, Sam, the general manager, uh, feeding a lot of uh, metrics and analytics to players. So you have guys then that are haven't played that are telling you how to play. And I, I agree with that, I, but, I, but the pitch clock is something that as a player – um, I think it's it's a very positive thing. So, you know, I think Bryce uh, and I have a great deal of respect for him as as great a player he is, and he's a great historian. He loves the history of the game. I think when you come up in an era that he came up in, you're sort of accustomed to, well, this is the way I do it. I step out of the box. I adjust my gloves. I think about what the next pitch is coming. And so that's the way you've been trained. Uh, whereas years ago, uh, you know, we were trained differently. We weren't as big or fast or strong or probably didn't have the ability that today's players were, but uh, we got after it. I mean, 
Mickey Mantle, if he took a pitch, he moved one foot, he got right back. Well, here comes the next pitch. And uh, so that's the way the game was played then. And I, I think I'll be eager to hear after about 30 days what the general fan reaction is so far. I mean, I check the time of game every day, like the the gem the other day when uh, when Kenta Maeda, the Twins, and and Sandy Alcantara, the Marlins, went uh, one nothing in an hour fifty seven, uh, you know, and that's for a one nothing game. That's what it should be. In my announcing days, I would do a two to one game, and it would take three hours and ten minutes. And I'd say, how in the world can that happen? There's just too much dead time. So uh, I'm I'm glad to see what's happening with that pace of play. Yeah, and it's been across the board. It's been uh, and I, that was one game that I caught on that was under two hours it was it's like uh it was like a regular zach granke game i guess under two hours well um as far as the style of play and i want to get to the twins after that is the, um i've been noticing you got more stolen bases right now um people are i saw i've seen a handful of hit and runs already i see guys i kind of laugh because the shift is banned and now guys are hitting the other way um <laughs> yeah and, uh, and then uh, and then some bunting uh, you know, just yeah. it's yeah. been baseball, like what we've been asking for. I mean, have you seen the same things? And is just yeah, not- I, I like it. I, I and again, you know, it's it's sad that uh, like like Bryce's comment was, people that haven't played the game are are passing down rules that are influencing how players today play the game. Well, that's the way the game should have been played before they instituted these rules. There was no reason. There's no value to the fan by taking all that time people did in, in a low-scoring game and taking three hours and 15 minutes to play it. So, and now I, I think the uh, uh, all the you know most of the rules are uh, are getting the game back to the way at least the way I learned it and the way I enjoyed it. So I, I'm kind of happy with that. Yeah, and as you said, there's been a lot of excitement um, around opening day. How much of that? Do you attribute to what we just got off of in terms of the classic, the World Baseball Classic? Yeah, I think that has had a very positive effect on uh, on the game. I don't know. Opening day is just a special time. Like I said, this year was different for me. Uh, I always thought that it, because I'm just a fan now, but I thought the uh, you know the three days that get your heart pumping more than any other days as a player, as a baseball player. Our opening day, the All-Star Game, and Game 1 of the World Series. And, you know, opening day, unlike any other opening day, I think just had a certain attraction to it. It was a like Cincinnati had a parade for years. It was a big attraction, uh, unlike, any other, un- unlike any other sport. So that's a special day. But I think the World Baseball Classic in general um, – has attracted uh, fans from all over the world and, and had a positive effect on the game. I, as you and I have talked about before, uh, and, and I know people from the commissioner's office feel the same way. Uh, they wish they could have it every year. When I talked to some people from the commissioner's office when the baseball classic was over, they said, man, we have never started a season where we have so much positive news. There's hardly any negativity because of what that event brought to uh, to the game and to the fans. Yeah, and, and on our little project to try to bring it along every year, I know we talked about 100 games ending at Labor Day and making it a real fall classic and then the World Baseball Classic. We've had I've, I've had probably a good 200 people respond that they'd be in favor of that. So if we ever want to get the, a petition together, we've got 200 people, listeners anyway. <laughs> yeah, we'll need a lot of them because, yeah. you know, the – the bottom line is follow the money. And when, when owners would look at, uh, I, I may have mentioned it before when I was a player representative in the 60s and, and the schedule had gone from 154 to 162, uh, we, we felt it was getting a little long and like to have maybe a few more off days. That's when guys played 150 games and, you know, so they wanted a day off once in a while. Uh, and Walter O'Malley, the owner of the Dodgers, pointed out the revenue that it would cost him just in eight games. You're talking about 18 innings, nine half innings of sponsorship, commercials. And, you know, that's when baseball owned the summer and, and fans, people just look forward to 
something to watch all summer, football, hockey, basketball, they were all over. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So it, it would make sense for baseball to have a shorter season, but uh, it's just unrealistic from a revenue standpoint. Yeah. Well, t- taking, taking the conversation up to your twins, uh, as we talked prior to the show, they, they had their home opener snowed out, which is something you don't often hear in baseball, but early in the spring, the northern weather can, can get you any which way it can. Uh, but what's been your early season impressions of the Twins? Who's caught your eye? I see Joey, Joey Gallo's leading the league in homers, I think, right now. How about that? Yeah, I mean, that, that sure speaks to the way the game is played today in terms of trading the batting champion uh, who hit a lot of singles and doubles, Luisa Rise. And you got Gallo, who has a history of striking out a lot, but, you know, he's he's produced with the long ball. So I'm sure Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, the uh, baseball ops and general manager for the Twins, are are thrilled with that. Uh, what's impressed me most with the Twins, and I just I just love this person as an individual, Pablo Lopez, who I, uh, you know, anytime a player who you don't know and, and they're from a foreign country and they come up and say, you know, I've been eager to meet you. I like the nice things you said about me. And when he pitched a playoff game and he starts interacting with baseball, it really gives you a feeling of, of being respected. And uh, and I think in Pablo's case, you know, such a, a upstanding young man. And to see him pitch the way he has early on, I, I think he's a, a Cy Young candidate. And you can back that up with, with Joe Ryan. And I think in, in general, the um, – the Twins' starting rotation, at least the first couple times through, has been, uh, I think, what the Twins expected, but what a lot of fans did not uh, maybe expect, that they were going to have a, a quality rotation. Kenta Maeda appears to be back from his his injury. Sonny Gray had a nice outing, so I, I think that's a, a positive thing. And they've gotten good production from a couple of their hard throwers out in the bullpen. Yeah, people forget Sonny Gray was a an ace for the Oakland A's way back when, before he had his yeah. Yan- Yankee stint. Yank the, the Yankee stint can take you one way or another, right? You can go. Yeah, I, I think you you know sometimes it's just uncomfortable playing in in New York because uh, uh, every game when when George Steinbrenner owned the Yankees, and I think it's still that way with the fans. Every game is Game Seven of the World Series. Every game is Armageddon. There is no such thing as well. It's just another game. No. It's a Yankee game, you know. If they if they don't if they don't win, uh, you know, if they if did I lose you there? Nope, I'm right here. Okay, I saw a different. Yeah, when they don't win, it's a big deal. So I think that pressure of every day, uh, some players just you know can't handle it uh, like others do. Yeah, and then so that with the Twins, they they opened up with two shutouts. That's great for their staff and great for their defense. What makes and, and I love the story about Pablo Lopez because it's a it is a it's a topic that we we hit on every show. Uh, these younger players coming through having a sense of reverence or should have a sense of reverence for what's been done in the past and the common courtesy that you receive from him. Um, I was smiling as you said it because whether you're a Hall of Fame pitcher or not, you're a former big league player, and at the very least, even if you weren't, you're somebody there day to day. Uh, playing a part in the Twins' success, that's a common courtesy that should be extended to you 10 times a day. And I'm glad that Pablo Lopez, I became a fan now after you said that story. Um, he's going to be one of the guys I follow too now because I, I think that's the way young guys should be. You know, I was I was shocked in spring training when he approached me because here he's from Venezuela. Johan Santana, who was a great Twins player, is his, is his pitching idol. And he he speaks clearer English than I do. I mean, I was just so impressed with the guy as a as a person. But I I think not from an ego standpoint. I just think it makes you feel good. I, one of the few players that ever did it during my playing career was Rex Hudler. Uh, Rex is a broadcaster now from Kansas City. Played for a while when he was with the Cardinals. I was doing a game of the week there, and he. He came running over to me. He said, I just want to thank you. He said, you guys that went on strike years ago and, you know, dug your heels in with the battles against the owners. He said, I'm making more money now than I ever dreamed I would. And I want to thank you guys for doing it. Well, that not that every player has to bow down and come to you every day, but it does give you a nice feeling when when you see the younger players appreciate 
that, uh, you know, the benefits that they're having today just didn't fall out of the sky. There were some guys that, you know, that paid the price to make sure these are in place. And uh, it's nice when you hear a young player uh, comment and, and, and respect you for that. Oh, it's uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I hope our young listeners are paying attention. Please and thank you go a long way out there, no matter what, where you're at. And people appreciate that. Well, what, as far as Lopez and Ryan, where do you think they stack up in terms of aces? I guess you can add Maeda to that too, right, as a 1-2-3 and gray. Where do you think the Twins stack up across Major League Baseball right now with those four leading the way? Well, I, I think they, they probably have a solid a group. It, it's, I remember the days when uh, a lot of teams were going from a four-man rotation to a five. And, and even back before the Tampa used the opener, Johnny Sane, who was my favorite pitching coach, said, you know, game five in the rotation is going to be eventually three relievers pitching three innings apiece because it was hard to find a fifth starter. And that's when we had a four-man rotation. Uh, you know, and now teams start talking about going to a six-man rotation, so they don't really have a solid core of a top one, two, three, or four. And so I think with the Twins, as far as health right now, um, you know, they're right there with, with four guys. I mean, you look at some of the other teams, uh, uh, Scherzer, Wainwright is, is, gonna, is on the I.L., yeah, uh, Scherzer's had a little injury. Degrom got out slow. He's okay now, but that's that's one of the big uh, issues I think with starting rotations is are you going to be able to run those guys out there thirty five times a year? Uh, and I think with the Twins, they have probably four guys that can do that: in Lopez and Joe Ryan, who I started singing his praises last year when before he ever came on the scene. And he's a pitcher the Twins got for Nelson Cruz from Tampa Bay. And he and Lopez are right there as, uh, you know, as potential aces. And you add Sonny Gray and Kenta Maeda that mix. Uh, uh, they, they sent Bailey over to the minor leagues. And Bailey's a guy that had a great spring. And if somebody stubs their toe and falters a little bit, why well, they could call him up and they'd have another quality starter. That's that's the coveted title, the ace, right there, and you used it both with Lopez and Ryan. What, as a pitching expert, you've been doing this a long time. What about their approaches? What about their games? Make you say those two could be an ace? Well, I think in in Lopez's case, he has an excellent changeup like Santana had. So he has the physical. You know, the difference between a good reliever and a, and a starter is that third and or fourth pitch. And Ryan has that, plus they have that, I guess you'd call it the it factor. When I first interviewed uh, Joe Ryan, when he came back from Japan and the Olympics and so forth, I, I said to my broadcast partner after Joe left the booth, I said, this kid's going to be a star. You can just tell the way he carries himself. And he is comfortable being given the ball and say, you're the best on our staff. Some guys want to slot in there and say, well, you know, I'm the number three or four guy. And if I could just, you know, I have a decent year, but I got these guys up in front of me that are the stars. Well, both of these guys, and I'm sure Kenta Maeda was, would do it, and Sonny Gray as well. They, they welcome the pressure of being the guy that the team depends on. Yeah, and it's so important. There's Nobody can help you when you're on that hill all by yourself. It's you and the batter. Um you know, as I said, yeah, when, when I was with the Phillies, we called when Steve Carlton pitched, we call it wind day, wind day, <laughs> yeah, because uh, we just felt like when lefty pitched, uh, the guys in the bullpen could wear their their dugout loungers out there. They didn't even do their spikes because we do lefties pitching nine innings. We're going to win the game. <laughs> I'm sure the Yankees for years when Ron Guidry was doing that. And when you look at a lot of your star pitchers over the years, like, uh, you know, Tom Seaver and Koufax, that's just the way teams felt. And I, I think that has a, a positive effect on a ball club. When they come to the park and they see Pablo Lopez, Joe Ryan, they say, we got a chance to win today. We're going to, we expect to win this game today where there's a lot of rotations that uh, you just, maybe you hope he has a good day and you hope you win the game. But I think the guys' names that I mentioned, they're, they're ones that teams truly believe this, you know, we're, we're a high percentage we're going to win this game. 
I think that's the definition of ace right there, right? That's yeah. uh, you, uh, you steps on the mound, you can chalk it up in the books right there, or at least when you're, you're not supposed to look ahead, but when you do look ahead, you see that tough schedule, say, okay, we can get one here. Now with, with opening day, well, actually before we, I want to get some of your opening day stories, but with uh, going, kind of going around the league or you can stay with the twins, any other players catch your eye during this, you know, first part of the baseball season as, yeah, I'm glad he, I, I knew he was going to come out like he did and he did, or just a surprise to you, a guy you didn't even think about came out, came out of the gate strong. Who is that? Any, anybody you've seen, uh, oh, twins? You know, I, I, I think early, early on, I think it's, I followed the twins obviously cause I'm connected with them, but I, I haven't really, you know, I looked at, uh, I think is it Mount Castle with the Orioles? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, there's there's Baltimore has a couple of uh, young players that have, that have I think they're going to be better, but I I kind of like to wait thirty days. It's like with a pitcher, if you uh, I always hated to to have a pitcher have to go to the mound and say, well, if you do well today, you'll stay in the rotation, and if you don't, you're out. That puts too much pressure on them. So I like to wait about thirty days and then see you know, how they, how they handle things. I remember when Carlos Delgado came on the scene, I mean, he just was hitting a home run every other day and then the, the pitchers figured him out a little bit. So I think we have to give everybody some time. Uh, I know Volpe with the Yankees, they're, they're singing his praises as, uh, as being, uh, you know, almost as valuable as Jeter was yeah. over a period of time, but we have to give him a little time to prove that he's worthy of that title. Yeah, it's been only what nine days now. Yeah, we've already anointed him king of New York. That's right. the way they do it there. The uh, yeah, and it's it's, it's that's the excite part of the excitement, I guess. That's the difference between fans and and professionals. The fans get too high, too low, and as you said, you kind of let's wait and see for thirty days. Anybody else you got your eye on, maybe outside the mound or off the mound, and with the Twins that uh, people should take a look at and. Keep the Ryan Gallo obviously started off strong with three homers. I don't know. I, I think with the Twins, it always revolves around Byron Buxton, and if if he could stay healthy enough to play 150 games, I mean, he just does so many things. Uh, he's almost like Ricky Henderson with uh, with a Gold Glove, or uh, you know, a Ken Griffey Jr. type of player. He he is just exceptionally talented with speed, fielding ability. And in the last few years, he's come along as a hitter. So when he's in that lineup and at the top of the lineup with the Twins, uh, that's their most important guy. And I'm sure if you went around all 30 teams, they would all say they have a guy like that. I'm sure the Phillies are hoping that Trey Turner is that guy. Uh, and uh, you want to you have a guy that just kind of is – as Paul Molitor, my good friend Paul, who has, of course, made his name with the Brewers and the and the Blue Jays as a player, but now he's involved with the Twins. But they called him the Igniter because at the time of the lineup, uh, top of the lineup, you know, he'd get a hit or get on base, and he kind of ignited that Brewers uh, lineup as he did with uh, with Toronto when they won the World Series. He did. He was like a rattlesnake with that bat, tiny, yeah. tiny movement, and then just snap it right out there with um. With Buxton, that that's a and, and I haven't had a chance to see him up close like like you have, but the talk about him since he was a minor leaguer was exactly how you you described that he was the total package: speed, power, defense, uh, could hit for average, and uh, had a had a great arm. Is it injuries is what's held him back pretty much? Oh, no question. I mean, he is, and he's not a soft player. He is built. You know, kind of like a thoroughbred racehorse. He he, uh, or like a sprinter. Uh, he's not a big, strong, muscular guy, and he plays hard. And he's had a lot of injuries running into the wall. So he is just. Uh, you hate to you hate to tag a player as being fragile because when you say that, you think, well, he doesn't really play hard. But this guy plays all out. He just because of that comes up with a lot of injuries that hold him back, and I think. It's kind of sad the Twins have to look at it this way, but I believe their feeling is if he could play 100 games, they'd be happy. But they're going to give him some time off to uh, to rest, which is, you know, years ago, if you if you had your uh, a player that was your top player, you're not going to sit him for 62 games. You're going to play him every game he can. But uh, 
they have to do that with, with Buxton to, to really get the maximum ability out of it. Yeah, it's crazy when you think about your center fielder playing less games than your starting catcher. Yeah. With um, Now, with the NBA is going to a rule now, and I know Buxton's situation may be a little bit different, but a lot of the monies that these players get in their contracts and even bonuses are tied to end-of-season awards, you know, first team all-league, second team. So the NBA just recently went to a rule to get a, get rid of this load management to where you have to play, I want to say it's – and it's not an exorbitant amount. I think it's 62 games. They play 82 in the league to say that they have to play 75% of the games in order to be eligible for any postseason awards, which, you know, you would think like, you know, why would I need a trophy when I'm, you know, already one of the best players in the world? But those awards are trophies, but they're also tied to five, $10 million bonuses at the end of the day, or, you know, additional monies they can get asked for in their contracts, max contracts, let's say. Um, you think baseball should go to something like that? That wouldn't be a bad idea. I was talking to Pat Williams yesterday. He's a good friend. And Pat, when we first met, he was uh, GM of the Bulls and then went to the Sixers and then was uh, helped put the Orlando Magic yeah, that's right. together. We were we were talking about how, uh, you know, I wonder if Larry Bird ever came into the locker room and said, you know, I'm going to take a maintenance day today. I don't think I can play. That was just it was just unheard of. So, I yeah, I think without uh, without jeopardizing their health, if you can somehow motivate guys to you know, to play every day, uh, play more games. Certainly that'd be better. I've mentioned the uh, example before. If I was a Twins fan, I am a Twins fan, but if I had a young son and uh, he said, well, let's go to the game. I want to see Byron Buxton play. Uh, you know, there's a one third chance that he may not be in the lineup. And uh, so from a fan standpoint, uh, that'd be disappointing. I'm sure that's the case in the NBA. If you got a uh, a basketball fan that goes wants to see one of their star players, well, he's taking a maintenance day today. Yeah, those tickets go up; they double and triple when you're dealing with a star player coming to town. So, I uh, I think it's a great idea because we talk about the changing of the game. We mentioned Joey Gallo; he's a high strikeout, high volume home run guy. Why does he do that? One, I guess, because he's trained that way, but he's rewarded by being paid for doing yeah. that. And I guess if we can take that same premise and apply it to load management, maybe we can make another good change in baseball down the road. That's another thing for our committee. When we shorten the season and add the world baseball club, we're going to add that to our list of things. Well, that would be another byproduct of having a shorter season is the uh, players, the star players would have a chance to play a hundred games like a Byron Buxton, if it was a hundred game season and, and same token with starting pitchers, you'd have uh you know, you, you'd have, you wouldn't have as much wear and tear, arm injuries, uh, injuries to everyday players. I think you'd have a healthier roster uh, if you played a hundred games, maybe had uh, a few more days off in there, a little more, uh, just a little shorter season. But uh, again, it's, it's not going to happen, but uh, yeah. that's, that's what is, uh, is hurting a lot of rosters is that with this long season, uh, they've got a lot of players that wear down subject to injuries and you can't keep your your best team on the field all the time. Yeah. Well, I want to I get your opinion on one more player and then I want to take you down memory lane here with, with some opening day stories. But uh, we talked about Sandy Alcantara. I know he's not a twin uh, down south with the Marlins, but you talk about a throwback guy. Um, you know, he likes to go in, in late in the games. He works quickly. He plays off the fastball. Um, what, what's been your impressions of him as you've got to see him grow? He's still a young star in the league. Yeah. Well, I, I think every team would like to have uh, a couple of Alcantara's on their pitching staff. Yeah, he's he is really a standout. And uh, you hate to say throwback because you'd like to think there are players, more players today and pitchers today can do that. And there are. Uh, but I think down there the Marlins are, are trained to say, hey, we can let this guy go. And, and you find that with, uh, with quite a few of the Latin American uh, pitchers that play winter baseball, they've done a lot more throwing. And I think they're capable of doing that, and they welcome doing that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, his and the way he pitches, the way he goes about it. He's, as you said, he's, he's, everything is off the fastball. And uh, any successful pitcher, whether they throw hard or they don't throw hard, 
it's it's usually based on command of the fastball that'll determine their success, and he's right up there as a gold standard. Yeah, in in one day, I was kind of going around the channels. I watched him pitch a few innings, and I was amazed. He was challenging inside. He was everything was fastball. Um, he was going after hitters, and he was working quickly. Then I think I flipped the channel. I saw a stolen base and a bunt in the same five minutes. Another one, a hit and run, and then see guys hitting cutoff. Man, I was about to go buy a lottery ticket that day. But I'm yeah, boy, you saw real baseball. I'm glad baseballs, at least for a short time here. Uh, another topic. I, I lied. I said we we're going to move on to opening day stories. We, uh, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals manager Oliver Marmol, Tyler O'Neill. There was a little. I don't say little. It was big. I'm I'm huge on base running mistakes. I don't think he can give up outs and make mistakes there, but. We saw an incident happen there where O'Neill, um, he didn't like the way he was running on the bases, didn't like the way he rounded the bag, didn't like how hard he was going. And uh, he held him accountable for it. Um, we talked a little about the show or before the show. You're aware of that situation. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with the manager there. I mean, if there's one uh, phase of Major League Baseball that for the last few years anyway has been at an all-time low, it's base running. Uh, and I don't mean you have to have speed. I mean, Pete Rose was a great base runner. Uh, when he hit the ball, he didn't look in the dugout and raise his hands and want his teammates to cheer and shake in the pom-poms. Like, I don't understand how managers even tolerate doing that today. But you round the base, and if that outfielder bobbles it, you're going into second base. And that's that's a part of the game where you don't have to have exceptional skill. You have to pay attention. And uh, when I played for Whitey Herzog, he had one rule, run hard until you're out. And I think that's been so ignored, and that's baseball's fault. They've ignored it. even goes back to when Manny Ramirez was allowed to jog down to first base on a ground ball with Cleveland. And then when he got to Boston, you know, they, once you let a player continue to start doing that, it's going to be hard to – it's like raising the kid. You, you keep letting them get by with certain things they're going to say well that you know you let me get by with that before what's the big deal now so I'm glad Oliver stepped in I think uh, I think base running uh, has been really neglected in terms of not just stealing bases but being alert on the bases and being uh, rounding first base being ready to take advantage of any kind of a bobble where you get into second and nowadays, guys, they, they on a single, you'll see them jog into first and then look in the dugout and raise their hand and look at their teammates. And uh, who knows where the ball's going in the outfield? I mean, you, maybe you could be on second base. Yeah. Yeah, they shoot their imaginary bow and arrow or they have some sort of hand signal they give yeah. each other. And it's, <laughs> they work more on that. Is it is it uh, become de-emphasized in terms of spring training teaching or pregame teaching, this ba- the base running? Because – to me, I remember that being a focal point coming through as a, as a high school player, a college player, then as a minor league player. We work base running every day. You know, I can't speak for every organization, but just visually what I see is there's not as much attention paid to detail with those little things in spring training uh, where we spent a lot of time. And even I remember with the Twins when they had Tom Kelly, who, uh, you know, was – two World Series winners there in a six-year period of time in a small market. He's, uh, to me, he's a Hall of Fame caliber manager, but he had a drill in spring training, a rocket fire drill. So he, he'd have nine guys out there and he'd hit a ball in the right field corner before he'd say, okay, man, I'm second, one out. And they had to figure out where, who, what cutoff man they were going to hit. And then he had the base runners doing the same thing. So there was a lot of time spent on those little fundamentals, uh, which today, if you watch spring training and you see pitchers throw, they're counting their pitches when they warm up in the bullpen, they're clocking their pitches. And when you see batting practice, it's like a home run derby show. So that's an example of how the emphasis is on power and uh, maybe not quite as much time uh, spent on those little things. I remember when the Phillies, when Pete McCann in Missouri brought me into, he said, I'd like to have you come in and talk to our pitchers about fielding. And I did, and, and it was like I was wasting my time. They, they really didn't have enough time for it. They had all these other drills or meetings they wanted to do. And, you know, right along with base running, pitchers fielding their position has been a neglected 
part of the game as well. Oh, without a doubt. I, I would think, and my older son is a pitcher, and I would think self-preservation alone would make you want to pay attention to fielding and the pitching mound. You're the closest guy to that hitter, and those balls come off probably just as fast, if not faster, than what you're bringing them in there. Um, yeah, it's, it's a shame, but you hit on a great point, and I hope our audience is listening too. It's You mentioned about with kids and coaches, whatever you tolerate, your players are going to do. It's not so much as what you emphasize as what you tolerate. And, yeah. you know, fielding, the little things are the base running, the fielding. Think about baseball. If you catch and you throw, you have a good chance of being successful if you don't make your partner have to reach for a ball or bend over. And uh, fielding cleanly and running bases will keep you in a lot of baseball games, without a doubt. In, uh, in years past, you know, you'd go through a lot of heavy drills in, in spring training with pitchers fielding practice. And then when the season started – Sometimes they'd be neglected. So I always, I always found it useful to, uh, you know, at least every couple of weeks get one of the coaches to, you know, hit a ground ball to uh, first baseman and I'd be coming off the mound, run over to cover first, just go through the, you know, the drills that you did in spring training and try to stay sharp uh, during the entire season. Yeah. Pitcher's fielding process used to be a, is a, was a staple at every practice. Yeah. Um, now when, and kind of, I know we're audio only, but could you kind of describe that to our young coaches and kids out there with what PFP is? Well, PFP, that was always the right of spring pitchers fielding practice, pitchers and catchers reported. And, you know, you'd get on the mound and, and, uh, you'd have one of the coaches hitting ground balls to the first baseman. And then, uh, you, you'd learn that route. And, and like you said, we're just audio only, but uh, you don't run straight for first base. You run straight for the foul line about, say, 10, 12 feet ahead of first base. And then you kind of make that little curve like a wide receiver running a, uh, a wide out pattern. And you learn how to take that path. You go through, you know, a, a number of those drills and then hit balls back to you, turn around, throw to second base, field bunts, throw to third base. And you'd have all these different drills that you went through every day uh, in spring training. And I, I think uh, I know that that's helped me uh, feel my position because fielding for a pitcher is really uh, no more than paying attention. If you don't anticipate that the ball might be hit back to you, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to get it if it is hit back to you. Yeah, that's and, a good message for every position in the infield and outfield. In the games that I watch now with pitchers, they let go of the ball and they're getting hit in the back and they're getting hit all over and all of a sudden the ball goes by. There, it's it's an example of there's so much put into their power motion that uh, you know that they're not in position to field their position. We just we just spent a lot of time on it, and I, I think that was normal in spring training. That you said PFP pitchers fielding practice. Here we go. Yeah, I remember when. You know, my boyhood idol was Bobby Shantz. And uh, on a Sunday afternoon growing up in southwestern Michigan, if Bobby Shantz was pitching against the White Sox, Bobby was pitching for Philadelphia, uh, I'd listen to the announcer saying, here's Bobby Shantz, best fielding pitcher in baseball, lands on the balls of his feet, square to the hitter, ready for any ball hit back to him, ready to go left or right. And then I would go off the back of my – uh, garage in the backyard and with a tennis ball and I would make believe I was Bobby Shantz and when I got to spring training in 1958 we started going through the pitchers drills and the coach after about 10 minutes two or three rotations through those covering first base he said kid you look just like Bobby Shantz well you know that was that was a great compliment to me oh yeah especially he had a he had great fielding prowess and him being your idol. And you certainly proved your fielding prowess as a major league player with, with the number of gold gloves that you won uh, over time. I think that's a, I think the, the message and, and maybe, well, I'll let you touch on this. You know, we we're in that era of specialization right now. How much of you t- obviously took pride in your fielding, but how much of your abilities as a defensive player after the pitch was thrown, do you attribute to maybe playing other sports or just going outside and playing in general? Well, I, I think so. I think playing uh, and Dr. Andrews, who was the famous surgeon that did a lot of the Tommy John surgeries after uh, after Job and, and uh, Curlin, uh, he always recommended that parents have their kids play all sports. And it's so difficult for young kids today because the pressure from coaches to just play one sport if they want to have a spot on the team 
And we never had that much, that kind of pressure. So I was able to play basketball. Uh, I, I was a little kid, so I didn't play a lot of football, but we played a lot of touch football, sandlot football. Uh, so we, we were always active with our entire body playing different sports. And, uh, yeah, there's no question that, uh, that helped my ability as a, you know, as a being a baseball player who just happened to be a pitcher because you learn to handle the bat, you learn to run the bases, you learn to bunt, you learn to field your position. And those were all uh, valuable things to have then. If you could do those better than the guy you were pitching against, it, it gave you an advantage. Yeah. And did you, did you try to take fielding in other places? I know sometimes you'll see pitchers out there shagging. Did you get another position? Well, I, they, they allowed me to, they allowed me to take ground balls at shortstop. I made sure I kept my pitching hand, you know, behind me. So I didn't uh, break a finger or anything, but you know, I used to in St. Louis, even I'd field balls with Ozzie Smith, Philadelphia with Larry Boa. And then Zoyle Versailles was our MVP because the day uh, in, in Minnesota playing shortstop and, and the day after I pitched, I loved to go to shortstop and field balls and make that hop step and throw over to first base. That just kind of stretched my arm out. Yeah. And then uh, usually pitchers, we would have little games we'd play in the outfield, catching fly balls. So you'd make believe you were, you know, Mickey Mantle in center field. So I, I always enjoyed that. And then in, in those days, teams took at least – two or three rounds of infield practice. And then after the starting first baseman took two rounds, then I would go in and play that third round as a first baseman. I really enjoyed that, you know, making that throw to second, like a double play and, and throwing it to the catcher on a ground ball in the infield. So yeah, those were the enjoyable parts of the game. And it, it actually helped your whole being as a baseball player. Yeah. I could, I could feel you smiling as you were describing that playing for yeah. an infield. Um, and I am too, but we don't even see our fielders doing that kind of infield practice anymore. No, infield practice. They don't even uh, take it anymore. Whitey Herzog, when I was with the Cardinals, that was a, that was one of his rules. He said, I want the starting infield to take at least two rounds of infield practice because when I went to the park, I just loved to watch as a kid, watch him take infield. Well, now with all the promotions that go on, uh, the field is occupied like from an hour before game time with yeah. all these festivities. So they don't take infield practice anymore. Yeah, but it's a shame the baseball field not being used for baseball. I, I like that as well. And I, I miss that part of the game, the BP, the infield practice. You get a chance to see guys really being professionals. And that's where young guys coming in now, and you, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, young guys coming in now are at a disadvantage in that regard because they don't get a chance to see that role model. And maybe no, the, true. the pro is de-emphasized, that guy, the Mike Trout, who could be that leader, um, maybe doesn't get a chance to show that as much. Um, well, we're closing in on an hour, but I want to ask you this question. It's a very unfair question. It's like asking somebody to pick their favorite child. But um, do you have a favorite opening day memory as both a player and as a broadcaster? Could you share, share one of those? Yeah, I, I think as a player, there are two. My very first opening day, I was talking about it the other day at a golf game, and a gentleman in the group was uh, involved with the Secret Service and used to follow the presidents around to different festivities, protect them. And, and I said, you know, I played during the term of seven presidents, and my first opening day, Dwight Eisenhower threw out the ceremonial first pitch from the presidential box. And then we were all gathered around and there was a scrum to see who could come up with the ball and then go over and get the president to sign it. Clyde McCullough was our bullpen catcher. He ended up getting the ball. But I, I always remember my first opening day for that reason, seeing uh, President Eisenhower, you know, and everybody was wearing a coat and tie. And, uh, you know, that's the way they dressed. Uh, the other one as a player was 1965 and they, they, brought it up in Minnesota because the twins got snowed out yesterday. But in 65, I was scheduled to pitch the opener against the Yankees. And I lived a little south of Minneapolis in a town called Burnsville. And the minute, and they had a heavy rain and, and heavy floods. They, hill, they still have signs along the road showing how high the water was. Well, I'm driving into Met Stadium uh, opening day morning and the traffic is backed up. You didn't have cell phones. I got out of my car. I said to the fellow up ahead, uh, what's going on? He said, well, the river is flooded. We can't get over the Minnesota River. 
I said, hmm, I've got a problem. I'm supposed to pitch today. So I circled back to my apartment and I called Paul Geal. Now, uh, Paul Geal was a world-class All-American football player and later became a baseball player. And then after that, he was a teammate, a friend of mine. He was the sports director for WCCO Radio. So I called down there and I got a hold of Paul. I said, there are four of us living in Burnsville and uh, we can't get over the river. He said, I'll call you back. So I stayed there, uh, waited about 10 minutes. He called, he said, if you can be in the Burnsville parking lot, high school parking lot, in about 15, 20 minutes, we're going to send a helicopter there. It's a small helicopter. We take you in two by two. So Rich Rollins, Dick Stigman, Bill Bethay, and I went into the stadium two by two. Uh, we only had 16,000 people that day for an opener. And uh, it was a day that I bonded with Cesar Tovar. It was his first day as a twin. And I got two out in the ninth with a man on second. And Joe Pepitone hits a little fly ball that your sons could catch behind their back. And I already had my glove off and I'm going to shake hands with Earl Batty because, you know, we got our first win of the season. And wouldn't you know, the ball hit Caesar in the, in the heel of his glove and dropped and they tied the game. And uh, now I got taken out for a pinch hitter in the 10th, but I went over to Caesar, Pepe, we called him. I said, Pepe, it's over. Knock the winning run in. Don't worry about it. And wouldn't you know, he came up in the 11th and he got a single and we won the game five to four. So as you can imagine, uh, I got a lot of effort out of Cesar Tovar every game I pitched. <laughs> but uh, that was a memorable uh, opening day against the Yankees. And uh, we won the pennant that year as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a great helicopter story there, getting from a parking lot of a high school. wonder how they deal with that nowadays. What, what about as a broadcaster? Any special memory? Yeah, I, I think all, all the opening days, I remember a game Andy Pettit pitched in snow flurries there. The opening days, games in, uh, in Yankee Stadium were always special because the Yankees do it up special. But, uh, you know, I, I think I remember that one in particular, and I think uh, that was the, the Hideki Matsui. I happened to mention he came up with the bases loaded, and I said, you know, this guy's got – like this rock star persona, this is a perfect moment for him, and he hits a grand slam home run. Uh, so those stood out in my mind doing uh, doing Yankee games. No, oh, nice. Well, we, I've kept you for almost an hour today. I missed you. I, I missed you this past week. I know you're in the process of moving, so I, I made you do a little overtime today. And I apologize for for keeping no, you. No apology necessary. I enjoyed it, and I'm glad uh, the game is off to. Uh, a good start. I think there's a lot of positive vibes out there from the fans, and I, I hope it keeps up this brisk, uh, you know, pace of play. It's not, I mean, I always use the expression when they said to me, why do you work fast? I said, I want to hurry up and find out how I did. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that, uh, as you said, we're seeing more stolen bases. We're seeing more action, and I hope that continues. Yeah, and, and this is kind of, I guess, uh, I don't know if we can answer this question ever, but what do you attribute all that to? Like, there's just been an automatic change to how baseball, how we wanted it to be played. Well, I think, I think the it starts with the pitch clock. And then, you know, I think the, the fact that the pitchers cannot uh, throw over to first base. And again, these rules are only put into place because players did not pay attention to the way the game should be played. And they, they just fell into this, uh, you know, I think in some organizations they were fed this information that if pitchers took 20 seconds between pitches, it would allow their arm to recover and the blood flow, and they'd get more on the next pitch. Little petty stuff like that. And I think it just fell into overthinking the game, taking too much time, and not really uh, paying attention to, you know, the, the more aggressive you are, particularly as a pitcher, the faster you work, the more strikes you throw the more successful you'll be. So I think now we're beginning to see that it's got to carry over into the, uh, into the entire game. Yeah. So maybe some of these rules have helped move the game back in a direction where initially people thought it was more legislation to, I guess, turn the game into a dividend and, and little. Yeah. I, I think now if these, by the time the kids of the low minors get to the big leagues, we'll say in five years, you may not need these rules. Yeah, because they're going to be and this is where it should have started in the first place, but they're going to be ingrained into their uh, 
their uh, way they play the game. They're automatically going to say, well, you know, we only get 10 seconds or something. Here it is. Let's go. So you, you might not even need the rules after four or five years. Yeah. And I, I like the faster working faster as well. With, yeah. now with, with our audience here, you know, we're grassroots all the way to front offices. What, what kind of message do you want to leave our audience? Anything? Well, I just think that uh, what, I, what I just mentioned, I, I'm so happy that the game is off to a, to a positive start that most people feel uh, they're enjoying this faster pace of play. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's really that only message I'd have to fans is I hope you keep following the game, even though, you know, my time has passed. I sit back and watch it from a distance, and and there are things about the game, the way the game is played, that that I don't care about. But that doesn't make any difference. If there's millions of young fans out there that like this, why well, I'm all for it. I just want to make sure that baseball stays in the forefront and is part of our culture as it has been for so many years. I think that's a great message to to send them off with, and I'm happy for you. You got to be a fan again for the first time in 66 years. I did not realize that you pitched through seven presidents. So that's impressive. That's a, <laughs> a jad of that. That'll have to go in the show notes right there. And uh, again, great stories. I'm glad to have you back. And thanks again for giving us your time and our now 15,300 subscribers. Uh, we're growing every day. 71 countries listening to you. They're, they're, they're getting smarter every time we have you on. And we appreciate you. Um, Jim, thanks so much again for your time. And Enjoyed it, Dave. Look forward to having you again next week. Audience, make sure we download, listen, like, subscribe to our podcast here, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you have a different streaming advice uh, device, text me. We'll sign up for that one as well. We want to make sure we get this to you. As long as you're liking our stuff, we'll get stuff out to you as well. And then hit us up on social media. As you guys know, you dragged me out of my cave, so make sure you engage us on there, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We shared, Jim got me to share a little bit of what I talked about earlier uh, this morning. We talked about it's not fair, uh, made me laugh as I was writing it. But, um, but thanks again for your engagement. And with that, this is Cots Corner, episode 154 on Real Voices of the Game Productions. We'll see you next week.